Welcome. My name is Ricardo. I'm one of the leaders here. We're so happy for you guys to be here. Sorry if it's a little chilly. We were trying to get the heater worked on, and we had someone here this week, and they left saying that they fixed it, and we come this morning, and it's not quite fixed. So, so if you're a little bit cold, we have some coffee out in the back. Feel free to get up, and I wouldn't be bothered if you decided to do some jumping jacks in the middle of service. I might do that. But if you, if you are a little warm, like I said, there's coffee. Um, with that, like I said, my name's Ricardo, and we're excited as we're moving forward as a church. As Ken announced, Wes has officially accepted a call this week, and he's starting November 18th, and we're excited about that. We're excited that, that God has brought us the man that we need to lead us next. We're leaving one season of transition, and we're going into another, but we believe that God is at the helm, that he's the one who's guiding our steps, that he sent Wesley here for this purpose. So we're excited about that. We're excited for him to come, and, and, and I got to speak to him a little bit last night, and he's excited. He's ready. He's, he's already had some plans. He's, he's asking me, can we do some things? So, so I'm excited. I'm excited for Wesley to start. And so, like I said, we're going to be back in Mark. We had Wesley here the past two weeks, and that was a blessing. But before that, I had started in Mark, and we're just going to continue in Mark. And as I said, we read the first 11 verses, but we're going to be focusing really in verses 9 through 11. That's where we're going to be at. And just as a refresher, last time we talked about, about Mark and, and the purpose of why Mark wrote this gospel. And his purpose was, was to show people who Jesus truly was. That he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was the King, the Son of God. And that's his sole purpose for writing this. We said that he was writing this from Rome, mainly to a Roman audience, to a Gentile audience. And that's what's going to impact what Mark decides to write, what Mark decides to share in his gospel. And we'll see that, that Mark's really purpose is not to give a chronological history of Jesus' whole life. We go from him giving the announcement in verse 1 to talking about the, the, the prophecy of John the Baptist as the forerunner. Talks about John and he gets right into the baptism of Jesus. Where in some of the other gospels you have them focus on the, the, the miraculous birth of Jesus. You have some of them focus on, on Jesus in the temple as a young boy. Mark, Mark just gets right to the point. That's not his purpose. His purpose isn't to give us a chronological history of Jesus' life. He wants to just point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the true king, as the savior, as the true son of God. And so everything, he has a purpose for everything that he decides to include in his gospel. And he includes the baptism of Jesus. And really, if, if we understand what's happening here, this would, have been, this would have caused some problems in the first century church for some of them. They, they, would, have, they would have realized what John's baptism was and, and that Jesus is now coming to be baptized. And we know from verse 4 that, that John, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, is what did Jesus have to be repentant of? If he's coming to John the Baptist, he's coming to be baptized. Does he have something to be repentant of? Does, is, he, is there something that he's seeking forgiveness for? And this would have, this would have caused some people to bump on this. They would, have, they would have had some issues with this. Well, why? If you're claiming that he's perfect, why is he seeking to be baptized? And we know, we know that Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He has nothing to be repentant of. We see that in 1 Peter 2.22, where, where he talks about, speaking of Jesus, that he committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. 
Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, writes, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus knew no sin. There was nothing about Jesus that, that sinned. He has nothing to be repentant of. Paul finishes, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the question that I first want to tackle is, why did Jesus get baptized? Why include this? If it's going to cause some issues, if, if it's going to seem like it's contradictory to what some of the other scriptures are saying, why do the writers of the four Gospels decide to include the baptism of Jesus? Because they all allude to it. you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke who mentioned it specifically, and John alludes to it in his Gospel. So why? First and foremost, it's, is that they're just committed to showing the truth. They want to show us everything that happened. They're not going to admit anything that may cause a problem. They're going to just deal with it. They're committed to showing the truth of what really happened. And as we see, Mark, is, Mark just simply includes in these three verses the fact that he got baptized. He tells us what's happened. He doesn't seem to be too concerned with the theological problems of why Jesus is getting baptized. He just says, this is what happened. He came, he got baptized, this is what happened in the heavens, and then he moves forward. But I would like to spend some time talking about the why. Why did Jesus need to be baptized. And for that, we have to turn to Matthew 3 and his account of, of Jesus' baptism. And we read this in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have been prevented him, would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so. Now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John, he sees Jesus coming and he recognizes him. And he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He recognizes there's an issue here. Why are you coming to be baptized by me? I have to be baptized by you. And we read in John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 29. And when he sees Jesus coming, John records that John Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John recognizes that Jesus coming to him to be baptized does not quite, he doesn't understand what's happening. He said, there's, a, there's something wrong here. I need to be the one who's baptized by you. And then Jesus responds to John in Matthew 3.15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's saying we have to obey all of God's command perfectly. This is what we have to do. This is our destiny. This is what we are called to. This is our our mission is to fulfill all that God has commanded. You understand that, that, that John's baptism was something that was commanded by God. John himself, John the Baptist tells us this in John 1, chapter 1, verse 33. He says, he who sent me to baptize, referring to God, God sent John to baptize his people. This was, a, this was a command, this was a statue that God is now requiring of his people. And so Jesus had to do it because he had to follow all of God's laws, all of his statutes perfectly. John Calvin puts it this way, the general reason why Christ received baptism was that he might render full obedience to the Father. It's this idea that he needed to follow all of God's statutes perfectly in order to be the perfect, spotless lamb. 
In order for him to, 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 to satisfy the wrath of God, he needed to live a perfect life. And a part of that was being baptized. We don't have the perfect sacrifice. We don't have the perfect atonement for our sins if Christ doesn't follow all of God's commands perfectly. So he, he says, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. See, in order for Christ to be the perfect righteousness for our sins, to be the perfect atonement, he had to follow all that God said. And by doing so, by, by following God's commandments perfectly, he becomes the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins. He becomes a perfect atonement for us. He died for us, for our behalf. And, and it just doesn't end, it doesn't just start there. It's his whole life is working towards that. He has to obey God perfectly his whole life. And it's, this is why that, that at his death, our sins are imputed on him because he lived a perfect life. This is why we can stand in full faith that we have earned forgiveness, that, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed on us because our sins have been imputed on Christ because he lived a perfect life, because he followed all that God commanded. Jesus is, is condemned on the cross because it's our sins that are condemned. And it's our sins that held him there. And by Jesus being condemned, we are now made righteous in the, in the sight of God because of what Christ has done. Not because of what we've done. Not because we've earned it or anything, but because of what Christ did. It's his living a perfect life. It's him following all of God's commandments. It's him following all of God's statutes that makes him the perfect sacrifice for us. So he needed to do this because it was part of the plan. He needed to obey all that God has commanded of his children, all that God has commanded of his people. Jesus needed to, to follow it. That's why he's getting baptized. It's not that he needs something to repent of. It's not that he committed some sin. It's that he is just following all that God has commanded of his people in order that we can now be made, can we now we can now be found acceptable, that we can be declared righteous before God because of what Christ has done way before the cross, because he lived that perfect life and then died on the cross. Now we are the ones who are declared righteous. This is why Paul in Philippians 3, 9 says, and be found in him. Speaking of, of Jesus, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The reason that Paul is able to say, I am I'm made righteous before the sight of God is because of what Jesus did on the cross on his behalf. The reason that, that, that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath is because he lived the perfect life. Because he followed all that God has commanded. That's how he's made the perfect spotless lamb of God. And by God pouring out his wrath on him, we're now made righteous before a perfect and holy God. Jesus did not need to be cleansed of any sin. He didn't need to be made right. He simply was fulfilling all that God had commanded so that we now may possess a righteousness so that we can have Christ's righteousness imputed on us. That's why Jesus needed to be baptized. And that's the importance of, of his baptism. It's, he's fulfilling all that God has commanded of his people. He's living that perfect spotless life so that he can be 
so that our wrath, the wrath of God can be poured on him for our benefit. And so if, if there's anything that we need to be striving for, it's we should be seeking to obey God with a Christ-like obedience. The way that Christ obeyed God, we should be seeking to do that. We are called to have a Christ-like obedience towards God. We are called to mimic him in every aspect of our lives. That's the importance of the baptism of Jesus. That's why we need to study and understand what's happening. We can go back to Mark now, Mark 1, 9, and we're going to look at, at what Mark does tell us in his gospel. Starting in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Right off the bat, this is in contrast to what we've seen in the, in the earlier verses. In verse 5, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And if you understand geography back then, that Judea and Jerusalem were from the south of the Jordan River. And where Jesus is coming from is from the northwest, from Galilee of Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee is in the northwest region of the, of the River Jordan. So Jesus is coming from the north. And at this, to this point, everyone else was coming from the south. So he's coming from the opposite way. This, this contrast. And he says, Nazareth of Galilee. And this is our first instance. We don't really find another mention of Nazareth in, in the Old Testament. You don't see it in Jewish literature. You don't see it in, in Josephus and in, in the Jewish historian. There's no mention of Nazareth before now. So it's literally the king, the Messiah, is coming from nowhere, which is why he has to make the, the claim from Nazareth of Galilee. Because no, no one would have recognized, well, where's Nazareth? He had to add of Galilee there so that people understood where he was coming from. And as, we, as I mentioned earlier, we, we have to understand the reason why Mark is including this is because he's writing from Rome to a mainly Roman Gentile audience. And what they would have heard this, they would have seen Nazareth of Galilee. They would have understand that this was an area that was mostly populated by Gentiles at this time. Yes, Joshua did conquer in 800 BC, but then the Assyrians came in, took over, sent out all the Jewish people, and now it's been just populated by the Gentiles. There's been some instances of Jewish people coming back and trying to reclaim the land, trying to convert the Gentiles to their religion, trying to circumcise them. And you would imagine that didn't go over well. But at this time, during the first century, this would have been known as Galilee of the Gentiles. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, is coming from, from Galilee of the Gentiles, really? And he's just trying to show show that Christ is coming just like the rest of us. He's just like the rest of us. He's trying to show what we have in common with Christ. You would have understood. We, we can see that, that, that Galilee wasn't viewed well by people. We see it in, in Mark 14, 70, that the Jews despise people from Galilee. When Peter is, is denying Christ three times, the last time, as, as the last person recognized him, certainly you are one of them, for you are from Galilee. We find that in Mark 14, 7, you're like, you have to be one of the people that were running around with Jesus because you're from Galilee. In John 1, 45 to 46, when Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, Philip comes back 
And he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's replied to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the mindset going on, like, really? The Messiah cannot, he can't come from Galilee. Later on in John 7, verses 40 through 41, after Jesus was just speaking about the rivers of life, of living water, people are now having this debate of who he is. And they say, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They couldn't fathom this idea that the Messiah, that their Savior, that the person who they've been looking forward to for the past 400 years is now coming from Galilee. They completely forgot what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9 when he prophesies that that's where the Messiah is coming from. Isaiah 9 one says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim. But in later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This prophecy speaking of, of when the, the child is born to us, when the Messiah will be born. It's saying he's going to be born in Galilee. He's going to be from Galilee. But they, they seem to forget this. They let their recent history, they let their recent, what their emotions, experience cloud their understanding of the scriptures. And they're like, he cannot come from Galilee. But that's what the scriptures say. That's where he's coming from. Next, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Mark does not simply say that the heavens open. Mark says that they, that they were torn open. When you read of this account in Matthew and you read about it in Luke, they simply say, open, that the heavens were open. But Mark uses a different verb. It literally says he, they, that, that the heavens were torn open. And really the only other time in the, in the gospel that you have this verb, schiazzo, used, it's when at the death of Christ, when, when the veils are ripped from the, from the top to the bottom. It's the only other time that we see this verb show up. At his death, in Matthew 15, 37, 38, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And there's this, this significance of, of, of the heavens being torn open. It points us back to Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 2, where it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. To rend it, to, to rend heavens is to remove from place, to, to remove it with violence, to, to tear it apart, to split it to pieces by violence. This idea that the heavens are tearing apart. idea that, that now something that's tore apart cannot easily be closed up. It's not like you're just taking the lid off something. You're, you're, you're tearing it apart. So it can't be brought back to its former self. 
This is what, what, what Mark is saying here is that, that what we read in Isaiah 64, 1 and 2, that, that this has come to pass. Now, this is what's happening. This is what Isaiah was talking about. It's happening at the baptism of, of Jesus. It's this idea that, that, that this a new age has come. This a new access to God has come. That we are not able to, 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 to have this new access because the heavens have torn, have violently ripped open. Also, throughout, all, throughout the Old Testament, this is a, a sign usually when the heavens are opening up. It's a sign that Jesus, that God is about to speak, that God is about to act. We see it in Ezekiel 1, when, when, when he's calling Ezekiel and the, and the heavens opens up and God calls down. This idea that God is now with the openings up of the heaven, with the tearing up of the heaven, he's going to let people know his purpose. He's going to let people know his plan, that, that something's about to happen. So what happens in verse 10, the end of verse 10? And he saw the heavens torn open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This is like a dove, not as a dove. I know we have all, all types of, of T-shirts out there and, and, and um, pictures of the dove being depicted, of the Holy Spirit being depicted as a dove. But that's not what this verse is saying. Says he's being torn open, the spirit descending on him, not like a dove. It's not talking about the the descent of of, of a dove-like spirit. Simply that the spirit is coming down gently, quietly. This idea that that the heavens just ripped open and it was violent. This idea that that the next thing you expect is the Kool-Aid man to come down. I, I know that reference. I'm not that, uh, that young. But that's what you're expecting. When you see the heavens tear open and it's something violent, you're expecting something violent to happen after that. And simply, Mark says, and he saw the heaven and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This idea that this, the scent of power from heaven comes quietly. It comes gently. He could have said ego. He could have used hawk. He could have used some type of other bird. But he says, like a dove. Have you ever seen a dove fly? It's gentle. It's quiet. It's peaceful. And so the spirit comes down like a dove. And it says, and it lands. Descending on him. Not into him or anything. It's just simply on him. Points us back to Isaiah 42.1. Where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. By including this part, by including the fact that the spirit is descending on Jesus like a dove. He saying he's pointing, he's painting Jesus as the Messiah, as the servant, as the one who's been commissioned by God to bring justice, to bring peace on the earth. Mark is drawing illusions back to that verse and saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. We see it in the scriptures. We understand it. The next thing that we see in verse 11 And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So first thing that happens after the spirit descends, 
God speaks. And he declares Jesus as his beloved son. And this declaration does two things for us. First, it's very reminiscent of what we would call enthronement psalms that we find all throughout the Old Testament. Which, really, which means that these were psalms that were meant to celebrate the enthronement of the king. That the king has come to power. The king is here now. And so they sing these psalms to praise him. That's what this is reminiscent of. That's what this is, what this is what people would have been reminded of. See the title of, of my son, who I'm well, who you are my beloved son. This is reminiscent of, of the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel, where he says, I will be to him. Speaking of all the kings who will come out of David's lineage, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This idea that, that the kings of Israel are known as the sons of God. And he just keeps, keeps that going here. It's also very similar to Psalms 2-7, which would have been at this time understood as a Messianic text. They would have understood this to be the text of, of, of the king coming to rise, the king coming to power. And that's what, what he was pointing at by by. by, by putting this in here, by including this in here for his readers, he's letting them know that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the Messiah, that he is a true king, that he has come to rule over God's people, to bring peace, to bring justice to this world. Finishes in verse 11 with you, I am well pleased. And oftentimes, when you when you look at the Old Testament scriptures, when you see this, God used this type of language with you. I'm well pleased. It's usually when He's delighted in Israel because they were obedient, because they listened, because they followed what God has commanded. And so He's saying, "I'm a, with you. I am well pleased. I'm pleased because you you are walking down the path that I made for you. You you are following along. You you are on the right path. You you are listening to everything that I've commanded, I've, that I gave for my people. And in you, I am delighted in. I am well pleased with you. God is acknowledging the perfection of his son in this moment. Jesus is baptized to, to show us that he is the true Son of God, that he is the true Messiah, the Savior. And the rest of his life points to that. It starts here, as, as some commentators will say. This is the beginning of his, of his ministry. And, and immediately after, he goes into the, to, to the wilderness. This is where it starts. And from here on out, he lives out his purpose. He lives and obeys all of God's commands perfectly. So that he can be the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus lived his whole life obeying God, obeying all that God has commanded. And we are called to have a Christ-like obedience to God. Christ, he obeys God perfectly from the very beginning. When he's led into the wilderness, when he's walking around doing ministry, when he's when he's walking to the cross, he's obeying God perfectly. Church family, I I want to I want to encourage you guys 
that we should be striving to have the same type of obedience that Christ has towards God. That that's what we should be striving for in our own life. That when God leads us somewhere, when God is calling us to do something, we, we follow, we obey God. Not because we earn salvation by our obedience. That's not what I'm saying. But, but what will happen is by obeying God, we're, we're showing him that we're thankful that he sent his son to die for us. You want, to, you want to know how you can show God that you're thankful? Obey God and his commands. It's like my son who, now at every meal, he's always, thank you, mommy, for cooking this. Thank you, daddy, for cooking this while refusing to eat. Thank you. I'm like, son, the best way you can say thank you is just eat your dinner. The best way that we can be show God that we're thankful that he sent his son to die for our sins is to strive to obey all that he has commanded, all that he has given us. To live a life that's worthy of God. Our obedience to God, our obedience to his commands and, and, and his statutes is a reflection of our gratefulness to him for sending his son to die for us. When we fail to obey, when we choose to to just live our life on our own and do whatever we want and not worry about what God has commanded in the scriptures, we're no longer showing gratitude for what Christ has done. We need to be seeking to obey God, to properly express our thankfulness to God for sending his son to die for our sins. We don't obey God because that's what we're told to do. We don't obey God because, because we're scared. We, we, we should be trying to seek to obey God because we want to show God that we're thankful that he's given us this opportunity, that he's called us out of our own mess, our own wretchedness, and he's brought us and he's given us a way out. And Lord, we thank you for that. And I want to live my life according to what you've called me to do, Father God. We should be seeking to have a Christ-like obedience to all that God has commanded so that we can love, so that we can show God that we're thankful to him, that we can show God that, we, that, that we're here for him. We obey because, first and foremost, we're grateful that he first redeemed us, that while we were still yet sinners, God sent his son to die for our sins. And we're thankful for that. And we strive to obey God the way that that Jesus obeyed him. Because he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Despite knowing how wretched we were, despite knowing all our failures, all our shortcomings, he still sent his son to die for you. And we say, thank you, God. Now I want to live my life for you. I want, I want to strive through to obey you. I, I want to live my life to point people towards you because that's what you've called us to do. That's what all, that's what the great command, the great commission is all about. It's, it's leading people to God, and we've been we should be so consumed by the gospel, so consumed by the fact that we don't deserve any of this. That we want to show God that we're thankful for his love, for his mercy, for his grace over our lives. 
Once again, we obey God because we're thankful. We're grateful that he first redeemed us, that he, we first gave us a way out. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for your love and mercy for our lives. We recognize that, that, that we don't deserve any of this. That, that we're sinners. But for some reason, being rich in love, being rich in mercy, you still sent your son to die for us. Recognize we don't deserve this. We, we didn't earn it, Father God, but, but it's your love and it's your mercy and it's your holiness that, that, that made all this possible. We recognize that we wouldn't be able to sit here today if it wasn't for your work. If it wasn't for you sending your son to die on our behalves. We want to sing. We want to lift your name up. We want to praise you. We want to spend the rest of our lives seeking to obey you the way your son has obeyed you. Seeking to make you known to the world. Keep us safe today as we go about our day. May we take this day to spend more time in your word, to spend more time praying. May we honor you with our thoughts. May we honor you with our actions. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.